How you doing? Awesome. My name's Eric. Welcome to, to E3. Uh, I got to spend a few days this week with my family in uh, Disney, the happiest place on earth. But here's the deal about Disney. Uh, Disney is, is the happiest place on earth, right? Until it's not the happiest place on earth, right? Um, I don't know about you guys, but my Disney experience always seems to be like things are going really, really well, or it's like, oh my gosh, I feel like my toenails are being pulled out, like right now. Like there's no in-between Disney experience. You're like either right there, and it's all happening, and it's all good, and you got all the fast passes, and you're like, ha ha, as you're going, like you guys have never done that. I'm so sure. Um, or you're the people, right, in the line, and you're like, oh, I swear those fast, fast people. The first time we ever went to Disney, we didn't even know about this thing called the Fast Pass. Uh, and so we're standing in these lines, and I'm just watching these people breeze by, and I'm like, who are those people, and why do they get to go? And then somebody told me, and then I became one of those people. Um, but, you know, my, my wife, Shayna, I mean, she does Disney really, really well. I mean, we get the system going, and it's like you get the fast pass for this ride, then you get the other ride, and then you're just, you're bam, you're firing. But you can never have the perfect Disney day, can you? Like, at some time, the system will break down. And, uh, and we, um, we were at uh, the Hollywood thing uh, yesterday, and there were a couple rides that were broken, so every, the wrench just got thrown into everything. And, and then uh, we were going to try and do a ride, and the wait time was, in a, uh, was improperly labeled. Mm-hmm. So is there a more miserable experience than like getting into one of those rides and looking around at like the 400 other people that you're in line with and you're like, I have been here for 45 minutes of my life and I'm going to be here for like another 45 minutes of my life and I can't get in, I can't get to the ride and I can't get out. And it's like the most, I think I'm, this might actually be hell. I, I, you know. So that's my Disney story. It has really nothing to do with this evening except for the fact that I hope that's not your experience with this message that I'm about to give. Um, if you're a parent, if you're a parent, you have either gone through a certain phenomenon or you will go through a certain phenomenon with your child. It starts around the age of eight. It can go till 13, 15. I've seen it go as high as 20 years old. And the way it played out in my household is one day my daughter, Emily, who's 13 now, was a completely normal uh, fifth grader. And she went to sixth grade and she came home one day from sixth grade and something had changed. And what had begun to change was that she started talking in a very specific way. And at the end of every one of her phrases, her pitch varied slightly up. So she was like, so I went to class today and I got some homework and I talked to my friends and I texted on the phone. And I'm like, Who is this child and why are you speaking this way? We called it, we just called it up talking. And we were like, you've got to stop. Um, Like, I I know there's going to be harder battles to fight. I know. But like, this was driving 
me crazy because I, you know, I'm a musician and I, and so I am, I'm pretty tuned in to things like pitch and things like rep, repetitive patterns of things I hear. And, and in our culture, when someone makes a statement and their voice goes ever so slightly up at the end of that statement, what do we hear that as? A question. But there were no questions. <laughs> she was just saying things over and over and over and over. And I'm saying, am I supposed to respond to this? Because you're talking like everything in me says I'm supposed to respond to a question, but there's no question here. So my anxiety level is just going through the roof. Because I'm thinking this individual wants me to say something, but she doesn't. There's no questions. It's just statements. A, state, a question desires some kind of answer. A question starts some kind, of, uh, some kind of unresolved moment that an answer brings closure to. It introduces some kind of open-ended, slight chaos into a dialogue, and an answer then resolves it. So my, um, my sort of angst about her speech pattern wasn't just complete randomness. It was the fact that I kept hearing a question that I wanted to bring the answer to. I wanted to resolve this statement, this situation, and I couldn't. And I think that's actually a lot more common uh, to us as humanity than we might think, because I think we actually really desire resolution. So when we encounter a question, we like the question to be answered most of the time. When we encounter other things that are somehow unresolved or open-ended, we desire closure. And I want to kind of spend a few minutes talking to you from a sort of musical paradigm of what this looks like and, and how music kind of uh, uh, exemplifies this concept. So when you write a piece of music, most of the time you pick what's called a key, you know, a key of music. And, and the key, in a very basic, essential way, it determines certain ground rules. It says certain notes are okay to use, certain notes aren't okay to use, certain chords are okay to use, other chords not. So for instance, if you pick the key of C, uh, the, the most basic note of the key of C is probably the note C. Yes. Oh, we're going to do great together, I can tell you. C, it's the most basic note of the key. That note is strong and stable. There are two other notes in the key of C that are also strong and stable. And, and in the key of C, it's the note E and the note G. It's a C chord, a C triad. We hear that in our Western minds, the way we've brought up, been brought up musically in our culture. We hear that as strong and stable. We also hear that as the opening chord of a Macintosh computer turning on. <laughs> that feels strong and stable. But there are other notes in the key of C that do other things to us. Uh, in our brains, physiologically, musicologists, science, 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 uh, scientists have studied this. And just to kind of show you exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, so we have the first, the third, the fifth. There are actually other notes in the key, and they all have, they all have sort of conceptual names. So we have the tonic. We have the supertonic. Supertonic. We have the mediant, that's the third. The subdominant and the dominant 
It's called the dominant because it's a very strong relationship to the first. It's a very, very strong relationship. The submediant, the leading tone, which is the seventh note of the scale, and then we're back to the tonic an octave above. So we build our chords around certain notes that sound good and sound strong to us. But if we took an interval from the first and say we didn't go to the third or the fifth, but we went to the fourth. Right. That sounds good, right? But in those two notes, we've just introduced something that wants resolution. Because even though that, that chord, that interval sounds good, it's not resolved. This note, we want that note to go somewhere. We want it to go a specific direction. We want it to go to a specific note. We want that note to go from here. Uh, uh. Do you hear that? From there? Sounds good. But this sounds final, does it not? It sounds resolved. More extreme would be the leading tone. Where do we want that note to go? Mm, mm, please, somebody. We respond to this naturally. I would say it this way, that we are hardwired for resolution musically. I think we're hardwired for resolution in general. When we hear something that is not solid and stable, there's something inside us that wants to seek stability, that wants to seek solid ground. And what we're doing with this short uh, few-week series called Un Unresolved or Unreasonably Loved is we're taking a look at the ways in which Jesus brings and has brought resolution, stability, closure, to so many things that the people of his day looked at and were hungry for. Certain things that they, that they felt like, this feels good, but there's an ending that hasn't been written yet. And in all the ways that Jesus comes along and writes the ending and goes beyond, far beyond people's expectations. Last week, Pastor Mark walked us through the expectations of the Messiah and the King and the way Jesus kind of arrives and fulfills those expectations but then goes even beyond and shows a way to bring closure and actually uh, also to bl blow open the categories. And tonight we're going to be looking at another way uh, that he does that to something called the sacrificial system. Um, but before we do that, I'm, I actually do want to take a, another moment just to pray. So I'm going to invite you guys to bow your heads, to pray with me, to pray for me and for us all. Lord, uh, it is not too small a thing to just say that you are here. And, um, you know, we come in these doors, some of us hoping to find you, some of us come in, to be honest, um, maybe not looking for you, not caring if, if we find you, but you welcome us all, God. Your arms are wide, wide open right now, and you desire to meet with us 
at least as much as we might desire to meet with you, but infinitely more in most cases, God. Lord, I pray that we would open up our eyes and open up our ears to learn from you tonight. Pray that you would quiet our hearts so that we can hear what you're speaking. I pray that, Lord, you would teach me even as I speak. And I pray that we would all encounter the living God tonight. Amen. All right, well, uh, for better or for worse, to deal with the sacrificial system, we have to deal with the third book of this Bible. Third book of the Bible is what? Anybody know? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Oh, yeah. Any, Levi- any Leviticus fans out there? If, there are, if you are, let's talk after the gathering. I'd love to. Um, the third book of the Bible is a, is a strange book, you know? And, and I, first thing I want to kind of tell you guys tonight is that sometimes we can just be honest, you know, and go like, there's strange things in the Bible, okay? Uh, and last week, Pastor Mark was talking about how there's skip-over passages of the Bible. I'm sure some of, some of us just wish Leviticus was like a skip-over book. But let me tell you, if you skip over Leviticus, you get the numbers, and it doesn't get any better. <laughs> so just stick with it. Get through it. Um, there's actually, in all seriousness, there's actually dozens and dozens of beautiful touch points and illusions between what God writes in Leviticus and what Jesus does in his ministry. Uh, and I wish we could just spend all of this time talking about it, but we don't really have that kind of time. So uh, what we're going to do is just kind of take a look at a few basic verses and kind of look at things from a conceptual point of view. So here's the, here is the scene, if I could set it for you. God has just freed his people, his children, his firstborn, Israel, from being enslaved. They were enslaved by a a military empire, the Egyptian empire. They were weak. They were powerless. They weren't pretty. They weren't the best. They were just desperate for God to do something. So not because of anything they did on, on their own. God frees them. They cry out, God hears their cry. He releases them from captivity. And now they've gone through the wilderness and he's shaping them into be, to being a people. And shaping somebody and forming somebody into a person is not easy. But that's what God is doing. Eventually they get to the point where they build something called a tabernacle, which is just a fancy word for the tent of meeting. So we're going to pick up the text at the very first chapter of Leviticus. The Lord called to Moses from the tabernacle and said to him, Give the following instructions to the people of Israel. When you present an animal as an offering to the Lord, you may take it from your herd of cattle or your flock of sheep and goats. If the animal you present as a burnt offering is from the herd, it must be a male with no defects. Bring it to the entrance of the tabernacle so you may be accepted by the Lord. Lay your hand on the animal's head, and the Lord will accept its death in your place to purify you, making you right with him. Now what follows in the next like five chapters of Leviticus is just instruction after instruction like that. There's blood, there's animals being slaughtered, there's birds getting their heads ripped off. It's like an Ozzy Osbourne concert. 
there's incense being burned. It's, it's, a, it's a, a, a really alien, murky experience to our 21st century eyes, unless your life at home is completely different than mine. So, so what do we do with this? What do we do with this? Well, uh, what I want to kind of actually do is instead of getting bogged down in all of the individual sacrifices, I want to kind of like take us up to like 20,000 square feet or 20,000 feet and, and look at the sacrifices as sort of a, a whole level. So uh, here's what I would say uh, to you first of all. There are five sacrifices le- that Leviticus prescribes. And they are called the fall. They are named this way. Ola, the Minha, the Selamim, the Hatat, and the Assam. So these are, the five, these are the names of the five sacrifices that are prescribed in Leviticus. We just read part of the instructions for the Ola. The Ola is simply a burnt offering. And what would happen is when you brought your offering, you know, part of it was in the text, you would lay your hands on the animal. And in laying your hands on the animal, you were doing many things. You were saying, this represents me. This is mine and it cost me something. And I am offering it to God, to represent me, to, to say, here's a gift, here's something that costs me. The animal, you would then slaughter the animal, you would cut its throat, the priest would take the blood and, and, and do different things with the blood, and then you would burn most of the animal on the altar. With the minha, the minha was a grain offering. It could be sifted grain, it could be some kind of flat bread. It was usually associated with oil or incense. And this was also offered as a gift to God, as representing you know, the best you could bring to the altar. The selamim was the peace offering. Has anybody ever heard the word shalom? Shalom is a Jewish word. Selamim is related to the word shalom. Selah, shalom is a similar. So this is the peace offering. Now, the peace offering was, was very similar. You slaughtered the animal. What was different about the peace offering is that you got to take, instead of the animal being burned, you took the animal, and you got your friends together, and you had a common meal. And it was the peace meal. And that meal was to celebrate the peace that you had with God. Not because of anything you did. Not because you brought a great sacrifice. But remember what's going on here. You're celebrating that you have peace with God because he's just freed you from Egypt. And you had nothing to do with it. Now, the hatat and the assam, the uh, hatat was a sin offering, a purification offering. The hasam was a guilt offering. They're very closely related, but they're slightly different. And one of the points I want to kind of get out is that these five categories are not like hard sort of buckets. They overlap a lot. They overlap. And furthermore, some of, some of the, the meaning and the significance of the offerings, scholars are still struggling over because Leviticus isn't complete. You know, it's not written so that we can replicate an exact uh, ceremony. So these five categories, they overlap. They, they seem to have similar purposes somehow and, and uh, similar instructions for how they're all kind of carried out. And we look at this, and I just kind of want to take a step back, and I want to remind you of God's story. Because it's easy to look at that list and go, okay, so is God like this bloodthirsty God that wants us to perform all these sacrifices? Or did he want all the Jewish people to perform them, but not us? I mean, these are questions I ask myself. But let's take a step back and let's remember God's story. Genesis 2. 
Adam and Eve rebel. God shows up on the scene. Does God say, okay, build an altar and get your sacrifices together so, I can, so you can come back to me? No. You know what God's first words were when he finds out what happened? He says, Adam, where are you, Adam? The first thing that God does in the face of rebellion is he starts seeking us. He starts looking for us. And when he finds us, the scriptures say that he, he knits us clothes together. Our God. Not to build an altar. Not to kind of get your ritual together. Where are you, Adam? And then again, we just talked about Exodus. And then, so, so, so this ritual system takes place right in the middle of God's story. Why? Well, here's one thing I'd like to suggest to you. The reason why is because this is what people knew at the time. You see, the ancient Near Eastern culture, they got altars. They knew altars. They knew burnt sacrifices. They knew slaughtering animals. And so what God does, and he does it over and over again, is God like leans down to us and says, let me tell you about myself in a way that you can understand. If you understand altars and burnt sacrifices, then let me use that. And I know it's a big jump, but it's not all that different than the tools we use today, whether it's Facebook or whether it's having a Bible on your, your iPhone. It's a tool for us to understand God, and God loves to use culture to tell his message. So one way to look at the ritual system is just to go, that's what people knew. Why wouldn't he use the ritual system? And then just begin to say, hey, there's a peace offering. Your neighbors have a peace offering maybe, but let me tell you, your peace offering is because your God set you free when you didn't deserve it. That's your peace offering. But it doesn't end there even. There's generations and generations and generations later, this guy Jesus shows up on the scene. And now what I want to do is just trace a thread from Leviticus through Jesus and beyond. So the first thing I want to tell you about Jesus is that whether you, whether this shocks you or not, Jesus participates in the sacrificial system. And furthermore, the writers of the Gospels in the New Testament, they want you to know he did. So in Luke chapter 2, we're told very early on that his parents did all the things they were supposed to do in regards to the sacrificial system. It was, it was time for their purification offering as required by the law of Moses after the birth of a child. So his parents took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. The law of the Lord says, if a woman's first child is a boy, he must be dedicated to the Lord. So they offered the sacrifice required in the law of the Lord either a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Then we're told later on in the same chapter, every year Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. When Jesus was 12 years old, they attended the festival as usual. A Passover is when a lot of these sacrifices were performed. So Jesus is growing up. This is his world. This is his world. But I, would, I have to believe that Jesus is not sitting around going, well, the way I get to God is by bringing the right sacrifice. No. No. I don't think Jesus ever thought that. I think Jesus knew his God was a God of grace and mercy. But when Jesus becomes of age and he begins his ministry, something changes. So there's this guy named John, John the Baptist. 
and uh, he was a forerunner of Jesus and was kind of preparing the way, we're told, for Jesus. And when John sees Jesus for the first time, he says this. He says, look what? The Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. And so right there, we're starting to get a clue that something in Jesus' ministry is a lot bigger than the sacrificial system because John says Jesus is the Lamb of God. Jesus is somehow going to be associated with this sacrificial system in a very deep and compelling way. And then when Jesus really gets into his part of his ministry, we're told in Matthew 12, he flat out tells everybody what's up. He says uh, in a kind of a debate with some of the religious leaders, he says, I tell you, there's one here who is even greater than the temple. The temple was where the sacrifices took place. The temple had a whole economic structure, a whole religious structure built up around it. And Jesus just says, there is something greater than the temple coming. And it's coming through me. There's something greater than the sacrificial system coming. And it's coming through me. Now, it all culminates, in a way, uh, at something called the Last Supper or the Lord's Supper or communion, if you're familiar with it. Jesus is having a meal with all of his friends, and he takes a cup of wine, and he says, this wine uh, represents my blood, which is the blood of the new covenant. So it all kind of builds up to the, to the point where Jesus ent- ent- introduces this idea of something new, a new covenant. A new way of of seeing the world. And and the rest of the New Testament, in a sense, I, I would put to you tonight, is written from the perspective of people who are trying to wrap their minds around what has just happened. Because Jesus has shown up and he's changed everything. And so book after book of the New Testament is people just trying to come to terms with the fact we grew up this way. We grew up with burnt uh, sacrifices. We grew up with slaughtering goats. We grew up, we got that. But now something is completely different and we don't know quite how to get our heads around it. And uh, the book that Pastor Mark introduced us to last week called the book uh, of Hebrews, uh, this writer is one of the most brilliant writers of wrestling with this idea. Wrestling with this idea that somehow Jesus has changed everything. You see, the, the book is written to a group of people who are really familiar with the sacrificial system. And they've seen Jesus and they've heard about him, but essentially they're asking the question, okay, we get this, but isn't the, isn't the old way better? Because we're more familiar with that. Isn't that better than, than this Jesus thing? And the writer is just over and over again saying, that's not going to work anymore. The old way is not better. One of the ways I put it to myself is that Jesus has changed the key of the music. So in other words, people are thinking, I've got all the stability I need right here on C. But Jesus has shown up and and, and basically said, hey, guess what? We're not in the key of C anymore. So where you think you're here, I've actually changed the key. And you're not on the tonic anymore. You're not on the place of stability. And you've got to move to resolve 
back to the strength and the closure that you're seeking. Don't go back. Go forward. Embrace what this Jesus has done, even though it feels alien and strange and new to you. So how do they do that? Uh, I'm just going to read two passages from the book of Hebrews. One is, they're both actually fairly self-evident. In chapter 10, the writer just lays it all out. He says, The old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow and a dim preview of the good things to come, but not the good things themselves. The sacrifices under that system were repeated again and again, year after year, but they were never able to provide the perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. If they could have provided perfect cleansing, the sacrifices would have what? Stopped. For the worshipers would have been purified once for all time, and their feelings of guilt would have disappeared. You see, one of the problems with the sacrificial system is that if, if you have any feelings of guilt left, you're kind of left with this question of like, was that bird that I brought good enough? There's this desire inside us that when we know we're not perfect, to just know that eventually I, I, I can stop working so hard. There's something inside of us that when we know we're not perfect, when we don't live up to our own expectations, we don't want to have to keep bringing bird after bird or goat after goat or whatever it is we bring to the altar of our lives now. There's a hunger in us for closure and finality. And what the writer is saying is that the old system never had that. And now I'm going to show you how. And I'm going to show you the connection that he makes, that he, the way he wrestles through this question that Jesus brings. We're actually going to go back a chapter into chapter 9. In verse 16, he writes this. Now, when someone leaves a will, it's necessary to prove that the person who made it is dead. I don't think this is anything new. I'm pretty sure we're all down with this so far. The will goes into effect only after the person's death. While the person who made it is still alive, the will cannot be put into effect. Again, this is all fairly self-evident to us. Uh, you know, we're starting to draw up our will. And trust me, my kids are not getting my guitars until I am cold in the grave. It's not going to happen. Well, what's interesting about the, the, the words that the writer uses there is he uses the word will. But in the Greek... The word will is the same as the word covenant. So you go back to that night with the Last Supper and the Lord's Supper and communion. And Jesus says, this is the cup of the new will. The new covenant. The new will. And he's saying right then, a death is going to be necessary for this to happen. In fact... If you just look at that language, death was always necessary. If you're talking about a will, if you're talking about a covenant, somebody has to, something has to die. 
And so what the writer of Hebrews is saying, like, you know that this covenant, this sacrificial system that you've been participating in for generations and generations and generations, it's a covenant, it's a will, something had to die. These birds, these animals, these goats, that's just the way the promise worked. But what if the promise was brought to a close? What if, the writer is saying, there was no longer any need to bring something to the altar to make God happy with you? And he says it's happened. That Jesus has enacted a covenant and he's enacted it with his blood and it's done. It's over. You don't have to come anymore and hope that your sacrifice is good enough for God to like you. Now the problem with this that I think that we struggle with sometimes is I actually think we like the sacrificial system or our version of it. I think that we're drawn to different notes. We know that's the strong, that's the res resolution, that's the closure. But I think in our lives, we like to play with the other notes. We like to add things on. So we go, well, you know, I've been pretty bad lately. Maybe I stayed up too late drinking. Maybe I've just done some things I'm not happy with. Well, you know what? I'm going to get to church early. And I'm going to get my coffee early. I'm going to sing really loud. Because that will make God happy with me. Or, or you might say, well, you know, I, I've, I've not been the best person that I can be lately. But you know what? I'm going to start going to work early and staying late so I can show my boss what a great person I am. And, and when he sees that I'm a great person, maybe I'll get a promotion. I can feel good about myself. And then I'll know that God accepts me and... God will be happy with me then. I think it's just only human to sit there and go, I can add other notes to this chord. You know, I can add these sixths and I can add these sevenths. But that's not the way this God works. This God says, it's done. It's been resolved. You didn't resolve it. Jesus resolved. And you don't have to add anything to the chords anymore. If you've ever been to like an orchestral concert, most orchestral music ends with like this incredibly bombastic boom, 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 boom. And that is all typically the one, the, the, the one chord, the tonic, the resolution. And that's what we live in now. Our life with God has been resolved. We don't add anything to make God love us more or, he, or to make him love us less. We accept what Jesus did in the blood that he shed. But you know what you do when you go to a symphony? Let's all stand up. When you go to the symphony and the notes have resolved and the symphony closes and the conductor that arranged all of the music lays down his baton. What you do when you hear that resolution is that you respond back out of the gratitude of what you've experienced.
We'll be right back.